to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Now, if you've been around here a little while, you kind of know that I'm uh, a sports nut. And uh, so as a sports fan, this is a wonderful time of the year. The Rockies are doing great, uh, winning loads of games. NBA playoffs are on. The Bulls are back on top. I know at least a few people were excited about that. I saw some Chicago in the house. And, um, and it, you know, there's, there's all kinds of uh, hope and expectation. You know, if you're a baseball fan, it's, there's this hope because the season's just beginning. You know, it's like... Oh, everything's possible now. Forget who won last season. Everything, new possibilities, you know. Uh, if you're a football fan, you're thinking about the draft, and you're thinking about, okay, so new rookies that are going to just turn the team around, we're going to get this guy or that guy, you know. If you're a basketball fan, you're thinking, look, there were all, you know, the Lakers lost today. Yeah, you know, and all, all things are possible. And so you're, 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 you're getting excited. And if you're not a sports fan at all, then I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> But this, but this can be, this can be a, a, um, a very exciting time. And I was thinking about this as I was thinking about our text. We're, we're going to be in Luke 19 tonight, the text, that Luke, uh, the text in Luke's gospel about the triumphal entry. But there is this uh, something about us, and I don't know what it is about us as humans, but whenever we start something new, it's always very exciting. We, we, it's almost as if we understand, look, we know what we got, and we know what we don't have. But this potential, this, this potential, this possibility is always intriguing. It, it, the new is always more exciting than the familiar because the new holds new possibilities. And so we're thinking, okay, wait a minute, something different is at work. Something new is afoot. There could be something that will turn this whole thing around. Uh, this is exactly the kind of feeling that we have on Palm Sunday because Surely God has broken in. Surely God is at work. And so there's this sense of expectation and there's this sense of, look, something that we previously thought would not be possible is possible. It's good that I'm just short enough to clear that, isn't it? I know you were worried for me, but I, I made it. All five foot seven of me. I went to the doctor the other day and I'm shrinking and gaining weight, so that's not a good news. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> but when we think about this triumphal entry scene, it's difficult. it may be difficult for us to, uh, to really try to insert ourselves back into that scene and imagine the feeling of expectation and the feeling of hope and the excitement about a new possibility. Uh, it's, it, it, the tendency is when we think of the triumphal entry is we already know the, the rest of the story, and so we're thinking about forgiveness of sins, and we're thinking about Jesus dying and how wonderful that is, and we're already thinking about Easter, for goodness sake. You know, we're thinking about resurrection, and we've got the whole rest of the story playing out in our minds. But what must it have been like to be in Jerusalem that day? What must it have been felt like to say, wait, this is the Son of David, this is Messiah, I suggest that at least some of the overtones, if not all the overtones, were political. Several weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, we, we saw what happened in Egypt. And I wanted to show just a couple images of this because 
Think of this, a crowd gathering in this square downtown, rallying the fervor of it, the energy of it, sometimes the chaos of it, maybe even the violence of it. And you think about you know, a scene like this, it seems like maybe after, because they seem fairly happy. There were some other pictures where they weren't. But here's, a, here's some images from that region of the world of a political upheaval, of the people rising up against what they uh, perceive, what, what, you know, I guess for all of that we can tell is an oppressive regime, and these people are rising up and saying, no more, we're not going to take it. You know, we're, we're rising up, we're, 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 we're going to throw it down. The uprising. It would be wrong of us to read about the triumphal entry and not pick up on political tones because it was there. It's not this pretty story about Jesus coming to die for our sins. This moment for them, if we put ourselves right in the scene, is a moment charged with the electricity of a political demonstration. These are people who felt like they had been living under the oppression of the Romans. These were people who had long been living under oppression. It goes back several hundred years before this, 400 years or more, when they were living in exile in Babylon. Here's a people, as we talked about, I think, a couple Sundays ago, here's a people who are well acquainted with sorrow and suffering and oppression. It's hard for us because as American Christians, we've generally enjoyed Christianity being close to the middle, close to the center of influence. Maybe not so much these days, but we've generally enjoyed that. But what would it have been like to really be on the margin, to really live as the people of God pushed to the outside of the power? You're not in control. You're, you, there's nothing you can do. And so finally, there's this whisper, hey, hey, he's here. He, some say he's a prophet. You know what? Actually, I think he's better than a prophet. There's, there's all this chatter going around. And so imagine this Jews as they're walking, journeying, taking the pilgrimage towards Passover. It's a long walk. And when you're walking, you don't have iPod headphones in or whatnot. What are they talking about? There's a good chance that the chatter on the way to Jerusalem at this time was, have you heard the man Jesus Didn't he raise that widow's son from the dead? And didn't he do this? And didn't he do that? Could this be? I think so. Yes, I mean, look at the signs and they're talking about, and didn't he stand up and read that Isaiah scroll? And there's all these stories and they're sharing it. And it's, these stories are running through the crowd, maybe as they're journeying. But by the time Jesus gets there, the atmosphere is electric. Here's the verse. The verse is our text for tonight. Luke 19, verse 28 is where we'll start. And after Jesus had said this, he continued on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And now when he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, which is so symbolic and so many um, different prophetic references, we'll we'll just keep moving. He sent two of the disciples. (laughs) I've got to tell myself not to take turns off the highway I'm on. Okay. Telling them, go to the village ahead of you. When you enter it, you will find a colt tied there that has never been ridden, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent ahead found it exactly as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and Jesus got on it. 
And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Luke's language here is reminiscent of what he had the angels saying in chapter 2. There's something we're meant to tie in. Remember, angels sang at the birth of this king. Now the people are recognizing it and saying it themselves. Very similar language. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they keep silent, the very stones will cry out. We tend to think of Jesus walking, riding into Jerusalem rather as this, oh, isn't this beautiful? You know, he was just, he kind of, you know, he mixed, he was mixing things up. They were expecting a chariot and he came on a doctor, a donkey, doctor. (laughs) Still thinking about my doctor's visit where I was shrinking and gaining weight, so... And we tend to think, oh, look at Jesus, you know, he's, he's having fun with this, you know, the donkey thing. Actually, the donkey is a very deliberate Messiah symbol. He chose the donkey not accidentally, it was not, it was not sort of a, oh, hey, everyone's going to be, it's not sort of the, um, you know, you're the guest speaker or you're sort of the guest of honor at some big party and you decide to sneak in the back door. It, it's not that sort of thing. It's Jesus saying, they're, 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 um, they have the sense that, I'm the Messiah. So I'm going to do a very specific Messiah act. Zechariah 9, 9 through 13. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. Is it? Coincidental that Luke has the crowd saying, peace in the heavens. They have this text in the back of their mind, in the ver- very likely. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the, my, the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your son Zion against your son's Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. What is this passage about? It's about God coming to act at last. It's about Israel's God coming to be king, ending this. And so when Jesus chooses and he says, okay, Go get the cult. Tell them the Lord has need of this. That's not sort of, my my sense is this is not the sort of thing that people just said every day. You know, hey man, can I borrow that? The Lord has need of your car for me. No, I, I think Jesus has them say this because it was a sign. It would have triggered something. It's Passover. There's already these, th- these whispers that Messiah has come. And so when someone says, hey, I need this. The Lord has need of this. He says, a colt, a donkey, the Lord. Uh Uh-oh, this is it. This is the year. This is when it's going to happen. Jesus wants them to know that he is the Messiah. He wants them to know it. He's sending these signals on purpose. The other verse, I think, that is often, the other thing maybe about this passage that is often misunderstood, including 
uh, and I have misunderstood this until I was studying it this week, is that phrase at the end of it where Jesus says, if the people don't cry out, the stones will cry out. As a uh, worship leader, uh, or having had that, I don't know if it's in my past or still in my present, whatever, but as a person who occasionally leads worship, I've used that verse many times. I felt like using it in a way to sort of beat the crowd, you know, like, okay, guys, if you don't sing, the rocks will cry out, you know, and sort of this thing, come on, get into it, you know, the stones will cry out. But actually, think about the backdrop to this whole setting. The Pharisees have just told Jesus, keep your disciples quiet. Why would they have said that? Because they didn't want that, that that Egypt image that we just saw earlier. They didn't want this big uprising. Hey, whoa, 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 now is not the time. And it's hard to know if they were trying to make peace with the Romans, if they were trying to talk themselves into saying, oh, it's okay, Rome's all right, they're not that oppressive. And Jesus is saying, look, if if they don't cry out, the stones will. Listen to this verse in Habakkuk 2. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain. This whole chapter of Habakkuk 2, by the way, if you're looking to do extracurricular reading, you can read this whole chapter. It's a series of woes, of prophetic warnings. And he says, by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You've plotted the ruins of many peoples. He's talking about these other nations. Shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Wait a second. How are the Romans ruling Jerusalem? How is Herod ruling Jerusalem? How did they, what was their version of keeping peace in Jerusalem? It was by shedding blood. Absolutely. There were other messiahs, would-be messiahs, political heroes that had, that had risen up and then been crucified. Jesus is saying, look, if these people don't cry out to me for justice, the very stones in the city built on bloodshed will cry out. In other words, it's right to cry out against injustice. Don't fool yourself into thinking, that, oh, Rome, no, we can play, we can dance with Rome. They're not so bad. How many times have we tried to make peace with the world or governments or the systems or structures and to say, oh, it's not that bad, or it's okay, or we can get away with this, and that's all right, and, da, da, da. and Jesus would say to us, listen, if you don't cry out for justice, the very stones that our buildings are built on, that maybe in so many cases in other parts of the world, you're, I'm thinking of Dr. Todd coming back from Liberia and the horrible things that have happened in, in West Africa, and you think about all of that and you say, look, There are structures that are very symbols of bloodshed and injustice. And if the people of God don't cry out, save us, then the stones themselves will cry out. This is Jesus saying, not get excited. This is not Jesus working the crowd into a hoopla. This is Jesus saying, do you recognize that I am the king who will bring justice? He wants them to to cry out for him. Jesus wants them to receive him as their long-awaited king. Jesus wants them to receive him as their long-awaited king. Why cry out for justice? Why cry out, save us, unless you believe he really was the one who could? Why say, come on, 
Lord, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes, save us. Why cry out those words unless you really believe he can do something about it? Jesus wants them to receive him as their long-awaited king. But what kind of a king is Jesus? What kind of a king is this? Certainly not the one they had expected. They thought that once he came, everything they had read and known about in Zechariah, if, if you read the rest of Zechariah 14 or 9 and 14, there's some amazing images and, and, and things here about what God will do when he comes as king. And so here's Jesus, and they're saying, okay, so this is it, right? What kind of king is Jesus? Israel had expected a king who would defeat Israel's enemies, restore their fortunes, bring peace. In fact, in one of the commentaries, when, when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls 30, 40 years ago or so, one of the things we, they, they uncovered were these commentaries on Isaiah and, and by, the, by the Qumran community, and they would say things as specific as to say, okay, look, when the Messiah comes, he will kill the Romans, writing about how they interpreted some of the Isaiah texts. How then, if this Messiah would not kill the Romans, but be killed by the Romans. How then, if on the road to the Mount of Olives, he's hailed as king, but on the Mount of Olives, later in Luke's Gospel, he prays with drops like blood. What kind of king is Jesus? Come, save us, rule, end this, come on, let's do it. Overthrow, power, revolution, rah! And yet, in a few days, there would be a cross. There would be death. The same crowd, maybe, maybe many who were in that crowd, that said, you're the king. We believe. Would be the same ones, maybe, a few chapters later, who would say, give us Barabbas. Crucify him. He's a failure. He's a disappointment. This didn't pan out. He is no king. It's like uh, Elf, you know. You're not the real Santa. You sit on a throne of lies. You smell like beef and cheese. You know, it's not not at all like that, really. But the disappointment in that. I have to wonder as we talk through this text. I, I, I wanted to do a more triumphalistic, triumphal entry talk. I really did. But Luke doesn't seem to allow us that. The other gospel writers have a very, it ends with the Hosanna thing as the high note. But Luke, the story of this ends with Jesus saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chickens, and yet you would not. It's Jesus weeping for the city. There's something sad about this triumphal entry. And the sadness is not in who Jesus is. The sadness is in the people's inability to get beyond their expectations of him or their agenda for him. I, wa I wonder if we are like this crowd on our way, seeing him, saying, yeah, Jesus, Hosanna, we love you, woo! 
but if we really understand what kind of king he is. How often do we praise Jesus as king only so that we can set the agenda for his kingdom? I want you to be king, but by the way, here's my agenda. I mean, it it works for the way we do politicians here in America, so that should work with Jesus, right? I'll elect you if you do this. So Jesus, I'll praise you as king, but here's my list. Here's my agenda. This is how it's got to play out. And we keep wanting the king to take a throne right now and end this now. And this king keeps leading us to a cross and keeps saying, wait, wait. No, this is my way. No, my way is not power and revolution. My way is love and sacrifice. My way is not taking things and making it happen. It's this cross. Now let's be clear. There will be a day when Jesus comes back as king and fulfills this other half of this thing. The prophets weren't wrong. Habakkuk, Zechariah, Isaiah, they were not wrong in what they expected of God to do as king. What they could not have imagined is that Jesus would come as king twice. Once to die and later to reign. There will be a day, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, where he must reign until everything's put under his feet. There will be a day where he wipes away every tear and makes everything new. When all that we've been crying out against, Jesus says, yep, here we go. Let's end it. Injustice will not have the last word. Pain and suffering will not be our end. We know this because there's something beyond the cross. There's resurrection. That's the Easter hope that we already can feel breaking in. But for now, there is this cross. For now, the king is calling us to a cross. I wonder... why I so many times want for Christians to be influential in society. I wonder why I get excited when I see a pastor on Time magazine or a preacher on a CNN show. I wonder what it is about me that gets excited when we find out that a famous athlete professes his faith in Christ. And I think it's the, it's the thing in us that wants Jesus to take center stage. Come on, Jesus. Be, show him, God. Show him. And Jesus is saying, I will. I will. But right now, I want you to embrace this. Embrace this. That the way of this king is not to take the center. But the way of this king is to take the cross. How often do we say, all right, we need God to to do this. We need God to be this. And and what if the resurgence of the church in America is not about being in any center of power? What if it's about the church learning to live out the love and sacrifice of Christ? What if walking in the way of the king and his cross is not about saying, come on, God, let's get this, let's 
get our guy in power, or let's get this happening. And let's, what if the way of this king is not about the church being in the center, but it's the church on the fringe loving the broken and the powerless? What if the rise of the people of the kingdom is not about power, but sacrifice? Not about control, but brokenness. Not about the ones who tell others what to do and who's going where when they die, but the ones who say, our king came. Our king knows your pain. Our king took this cross on himself because he carried the weight of sin and evil in the world. And so, follow him. But to follow, to call Jesus king, is to follow him to the cross. To call Jesus king is to follow him to the cross. If you could, underneath your seats, there are these palm branches. We had fun waving them. I really did enjoy that. In fact, I bruised mine pretty badly, so I'll get a new one here. I want you to take it in your hand and look at it. And to ask yourself this. What are you hoping for King Jesus to do? If Jesus were riding into your marriage, to your home, to your life, to your workplace, and he is, what do you want him to do? So for some of you, this palm branch may represent expectations. God, I was really hoping that you would do this. I was hoping that when you came into my life that you would make this happen. And and that's okay to say. He wants to know what we expect of him. Think of that. Maybe it's not quite an expectation, but maybe it's just a deep hope. God, I have this hope for my life that that I'd be able to do this. Or maybe your palm branch for you is this, this, this thing you've been hoping for. God, I really have this hope that we'll be in a place to, to, to be a blessing to people with finances. And right now things are, are just thin. It's your hope. Maybe... It's not quite that optimistic. Maybe for some of you, this palm branch is a fear. Oh, God, not again. Lord, I don't want to go through that again. Oh, God, I just, I just, I want your king, but I just, I'm afraid that it's not going to work out or I'm going to be alone again, that it's not going to work again, that I'm going to be disappointed again. I'm, I'm afraid. And so maybe it represents fear. maybe it's just the pain of the past. I've waved palm branches before. I thought God was coming before. Sure didn't happen. Maybe there's pain. Think about what this could be in your life. 
what I want us to do in just a moment is we're going to lay down our different palm branches here at the foot of the cross. Or we're going to say, Jesus, here's my hope. Here's my expectation. Here's my fear. Here's my pain. I want you to be the king of it. I mean it when I say, Hosanna, you're the king. I mean it when I believe, when I say, I believe it when I say that you've come to save. I know it. I believe it. I trust it. God, I'm laying this down before you. Because to call you king is to embrace your cross. So take a moment. Say, Lord, what is this for me? What's my palm branch that I'm waving to you as king that I'm going to lay down at your cross? Because the crowd that was in Jerusalem that they had to sort of decide. We thought you were king, but is this the sort of king we thought you were? And that's what we have to decide. Jesus, we know that you're king. sort of king we think you are. We know you're good. We know you're loving. We know you save. We surrender. Lay it down. Let's take a moment as Theo plays and God's enemies. On the cross, he defeated darkness, the rulers of this world, strongholds, the enemy, Satan himself. He defeated the sinfulness in our own hearts, took the weight of it on himself. He really did accomplish the greatest victory of all. See, this is the thing, is they were hoping for political revolution. What they got was the the overthrow, the beginning of the overthrow of all evil itself. I know this, that whatever you're laying down tonight, God's way is not only higher, but His victory is far greater than you could have thought. His saving is far stronger than we could think. Laying down these palm branches of our hopes and dreams and fears and expectations is not an act of saying, okay, well, gee, uh, whatever will be, will be. No, it's a way of saying, God, I believe that the kind of king that you are, you bring salvation 
in a way that's far greater than I can see. So because you're king, I lay this down at your cross. Does that make sense? Let's do this. As we've laid palms down, let's lift up our palms, palms up. Another sign of surrender. Thank you that you are the humble king, Jesus. Thank you that you entered our world. Not just to share in our suffering, but to save. To save. To save. You are the one who saves. Thank you that we've got this taste of your salvation already in us. Thank you that so much more is coming. Spirit of God, would you make us people who live like our King? Teach us the way of humility. Teach us the way of sacrifice. Help us resist the temptation for power and control. Teach us the low way. Help us to embrace this cross that you call us to carry every day. Even as we carry life, resurrection life in our hearts, yet we carry this brokenness of your cross, this lowering of ourselves. Fix this image in our heads and in our hearts, this laying down of our dreams, expectations, fears, pain, hopes, and saying, Jesus, be king. Be the king. Come and reign. Come and reign in our homes. Come and reign in our marriages. Come and reign with our kids. Come and reign in all these situations that we cannot fix, that we cannot control, that we cannot change. Come and reign, God. Hosanna. Come and save. Come and reign. Come and save. We surrender to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. May we be carriers of this to the world around us. Carriers of love and humility and this beautiful work of our Savior. Amen.